I recently found myself near Grand Central Station, and it reminded me that Public House on 41st had closed. Imagine that, a fixture of New York nightlife and over 10,000 square foot of real estate dedicated to socializing the most optimistic people in the city, just shut down after 15 years. Marveling at our political class's ability to repeatedly shoot themselves in the head, I recalled many an evening there. I have to admit, almost shedding a tear. But you shouldn't regret something is over. Just be happy that it happened. And I'm happy to have met so many people at Public House. I was on my way to meet one of them now, in fact. Let's call him Brother Jimmy. Jimmy used to do this thing called Five Before Five. Meet him at a bar right after the closing bell and you could watch him take down five martinis before 5 p.m. Didn't hold the stem, mind you. Instead, he held them like a mug in his big hands. Sometimes he'd pinch the rim of the glass and swill it like a bowl of soup. Outside of my immediate group of friends, known as The Circus, more of my podcasts are about Jimmy than any other person. He is the most absurd man I've ever met, yet one of the most successful in the game of life we find ourselves competing in. And I've never known him not to be gainfully employed. It's difficult to wrap your head around. The moment you stop taking him seriously or begin to roll your eyes, he'll pull a rabbit out of the hat that ties a conversation together perfectly, or he'll hit you with an unexpected punchline that'll make you spit out your beer. Jimmy strolls confidently through the hesitant New York crowd and takes a seat opposite me. He immediately points out how sad it was that Public House had closed with a whisper rather than a thud or some sort of explosion. Perhaps it would have been better to be like Max on Staten Island, to go out fighting with a whiskey in one hand and a claymore in the other. Public House had a champagne problem, though. They'd been so successful that their investors had been de-risked through dividends. They were all playing with the house's money. There was no one left to fight for them at the end. My interview technique is pretty refined by now. The first thing I do is take out a notebook and my embassy pen. Then I put them on the table where everyone can see them. Jimmy raises an eyebrow at being on the record, and as he does so, I ask him the same question I've been asking everyone recently. What was your favorite New York bar? One that has since closed. I write down the answer, then put down the pen and see where the conversation takes us. He says that by far, his favorite place was Martell's. And this is why. Jimmy grew up poor, but even from an early age, by God, he knew he wasn't going to die poor. One of the most acute problems with poverty comes down to the lower margin of error. It's just easier to fall into a positive feedback loop, which is when things spin off the rails so badly that it's impossible to pull yourself up from your bootstraps. This is something that conservatives don't seem to understand well enough. There is a point where the odds are so stacked against you early in life that you can never get your head properly above water. This ties into the concept of thrownness. To some extent, your future is simply determined for you. Where you were born, physical and mental characteristics, whether your parents stick around, who helps you, and who doesn't. The question isn't whether life is unfair. It is. The question is what to do about it. Well, Jimmy was determined to get out of Bensonhurst. At an early age, he looked around to see where the money was. His father had some money, but he was a criminal in and out of prison his whole life. That didn't seem like an attractive career path whatsoever. Surely there was a middle way, a place to seek your fortune tiptoeing up to a bunch of lines while never quite crossing them. Jimmy noted that people had money at bars and they were all around his neighborhood. 
Get a job at one of those? That was the near challenge. And people most definitely had money on Wall Street. Get a job there? That was the far challenge. Jimmy begins working at a wide variety of bars across New York. He asks every patron what he or she does for a living, and if they're in finance, he pleads with them to sit down and explain what they do, just to give him advice. He figured every meeting is an interview anyway. The main thing is just get the meeting. This sort of thing works surprisingly well. He soon has an internship at Solomon Smith Barney. This is a generation after Liar's Poker, but he suspects there was still plenty of untoward behavior to get in on. Sure enough, one day he was running mail past the trading desk and was invited to gamble on the 1997 Super Bowl. Fortuitously, the Packers beat the Patriots and he won $2,000. This is more money than he's ever had in his life, and incidentally leads to a lifelong passion for watching Boston choke. He takes the money straight to Klett's gun shop in Staten Island to buy a 38 special, then goes to the bank to open up a safe deposit box. Leaves the gun and the cash there, but keeps enough in his pocket to take some chances with. Then he heads off to Smith and Walensky's, becomes a Friday night local. It's there at the bar he meets Tarzan for the first time. If you're new to the podcast, it doesn't matter. Tarzan is exactly the person you're thinking of. Jimmy and Tarzan go on an absolute bender. Somehow they find themselves up by Highbridge buying giant foam Yankees fingers and duct tape. Tarzan uses the tape to tie one of the Yankees' fingers to his arm, then they flag down a yellow cab and drive up to Boston. Late Friday night in Massachusetts with a giant foam Yankees' finger is obviously an interesting storyline in itself. But in the interest of time, let's put a pin in it for now. The two of them wake up in a courtyard somewhere and decide to go check out Fenway Park. They buy a couple of tickets from a bemused scalper outside, and they're good seats, right up the front. This is back before corporates took down that sort of real estate and only die-hard Bostonian families sat there. Three generations of Red Sox fans that had only known the curse of the Bambino. Jimmy and Tarzan roll in there with the arrogance of youth, the only time in your life when you're allowed to do impossible things. The Red Sox fans tolerate Jimmy cheering for the other team and Tarzan's Yankees paraphernalia for a while. Just out of sheer morbid curiosity, they allow the freak show to continue until the Red Sox start losing badly. Then the mood turns. One punter in particular decides to take it on himself to clear Jimmy the hell out of there. The Red Sox fan yells, Hey, why don't you sit down? Jimmy retorts, Hey, why don't you shut the fuck up? In a fury, the fan jumps out of his seat and makes his way down to Jimmy in a hurry, knocking a kid's ice cream out of his hand. Jimmy stands up to meet him. Takes out $20. Explains he won this betting against the Patriots in the Super Bowl, and the Red Sox fans should use it to buy the kid another ice cream. And himself a new haircut. Everyone laughs at this, but a security guard is soon called, and then the police after that. The cop tells Jimmy he has to leave. Quite reasonably, Jimmy points out that no, he spent good money on these tickets. He's with a client. He's not the one who left his seat to start shit. He's just standing his ground. An American tradition. The police are insistent. But so is Jimmy. Eventually, he sees no way out, but refuses to walk out himself. Instead of fighting with the police like a normal masshole, he goes completely boneless, and it takes four of them to carry him out and up the stairs, while Tarzan leads the crowd in a chant insulting the cops and waving the giant Yankees finger around like a conductor. 
When they get back to New York, Jimmy goes to a safety deposit box, pushes the gun aside, and takes out enough money for two plane tickets to San Diego for the 1998 Super Bowl. For the purposes of the story, the rest of the year is uneventful. Half of the money is left in the safety deposit box, his life savings, and it calls to him to be spent. A week before the next Super Bowl, he takes it to Martell's and puts it in their box pool. Let's take a minute to explain this, because I don't personally gamble or have much interest in sports. I needed it explained to me. A box pool consists of a grid of boxes with corresponding numbers, one matching the column the box is in and one matching the row. One football team is assigned the row numbers, and the other team is assigned the column numbers. If the last digit of each team's score matches those two digits, the person who bought that box is a winner. For example, if the final score is 31-24, the person who has 1 and 4 for the correct teams is the winner. The Martell box is $1,000 a square. 100 squares. Winner take all. Jimmy heads off to San Diego with another fixture of New York City. Let's call him Elvis. They hit the bars. The bars hit them back twice as hard, and by midnight they had gathered a remarkable crew around them. A couple of correspondents from the New York Post and some of the biggest names in ice hockey like Messier and Brian Leach were there. Elvis points to another group at the bar and says some of them look like members of the Eagles. Jimmy is dismissive, says the Philadelphia Eagles suck. He's already lining up bets they'll have the worst record in franchise history in the coming NFL season. Elvis snorts at him. Do those guys look like football players to you? No, that's the rock band, the Eagles, Don Henley, Glenn Frey, Timmy Schmidt. Jimmy rolls over there with the confidence of the new kid in town, and it turns out the Eagles are some of the nicest people in the music business, totally without artifice or attitude. And they live life in the fast lane. Back then, every bar in San Diego closed at 1 p.m., Super Bowl weekend or not. Jimmy and his extensive entourage are ushered out into the parking lot when Elvis is struck by a brilliant idea. San Diego bars are shut, but Tijuana? Those are open. They pack themselves into cars, skip over the border, and end up in a bar with witchy women and all the windows blacked out. Every time a whistle goes off in this place, you lean back and tequila gets poured down your throat. Eventually, Jimmy wanders outside to find a payphone and the sun is blazing down from overhead. He stands there and thinks about this for a long time. Wonders if he needs to be somewhere. If it's midday in Mexico, what time is it in California? Then it dawns on him. Everyone inside is going to miss the Super Bowl. There's an unquestionably comical scene that follows where they have to get across the border while the Eagles drunkenly sing lurid songs and the New York Post correspondents piss their pants about getting fired. But the details are lost to time, obscured by middle-aged memory and Elway's helicopter run. After the game and yet another night of drinking like a bunch of filthy animals, Jimmy and Elvis stumble into LAX for the red-eye home. They're sitting at the bar resembling a couple of zombies when Jimmy's pager lights up. He barely notices it at first and then ignores it until the 10th or 11th alert. Finally, he walks over to a payphone and the Irish lass who worked the bar at Martell's answers. She's so excited and her brogue is so thick he can barely understand her. She's like, Woohoo! Jimmy, you did it! You won the box! You won the box! Now, Jody's underground Staten Island NCAA pool ran close to a million dollars back then, but Martell's box was still a hundred grand. In a world without itemized receipts. What did Jimmy do with the money? Well, that's between me, him, and the rest of us who hate the IRS. <laughs>